Well, Pastor Thomas was supposed to be preaching tonight, but he had a baby, and uh, I jumped at the chance to teach um, from Hosea. It's a book many are not as familiar with, myself included, and whenever you have to teach something, you really have to dive in deep and uh, get, get some knowledge of the book. And so many people are familiar, at least, with the book in part because of its unique contribution to the, the canon of Scripture in portraying God's relationship with his people as a marriage. This is found in other places, but particularly uh, expressed in Hosea. Now, um, Hosea is a fascinating book because it comes at a time where Israel is at its worst, really. Um, It's been said that Israel was essentially as the Brits say, playing it false in this marriage with God. And that came out in three particular forms. They were playing it false politically. So instead of trusting in God, they were trusting in Assyria, trusting in Egypt for their security. That's a no-no. They were playing, playing false in this marriage religiously because they were having other gods. We read of Baal or Baal, however you want to say it, that was the cult of that day. They were doing syncretism, wrapping in other gods, and then they were playing a false immorality, as we'll see in this book, murder, theft, stealing, um, adultery. It was dreadful. And so, fascinating enough, the picture that God is going to give us of Israel is of an unfaithful spouse. And how he goes about doing that is just as wild. Okay, let's pray for help. Lord, help us as we study this book. May we grasp the overview of it and understand it and then also see wondrously your goodness. For you are a good and faithful God, even when you discipline your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you wanted a big idea for this book, it's really how God, the faithful one, relentlessly pursues his unfaithful people. And this, though, by saying that, doesn't mean he's not going to discipline his people. Okay? I could use just a a brief analogy. I mean, some of you had teenagers, and, you know, some people deal with teenagers in different ways. There's different philosophies for how you might deal with, especially a wayward teenager. One of them would be to play it cool, as it were. I'm taking this illustration from uh, Derek Kidner. It's in his commentary. You play it cool, uh, there's playing it tough, and then there's playing it tender. Playing it cool is, you know what? You're going to let things play out and let their fingers get burned a little bit. You're going to play the chill parent and be like, they're going to learn their lesson the hard way. So you, you take it easy. The other way is to play it tough, where... Johnny comes home and you're going to sit him down and you're going to unload on him and you're going to tell him everything they're doing wrong and where this is going to end while dad's dad's saying you know he's unleashing he's he's undoing the clip of the bazooka while mom's loading up hers and then when his goes out mom is ready to start blasting too that's the that's the playing it tough and then you have the final the playing it tender and that's when you might sit Johnny on the couch and you with 
cheeks soaked with tears, you're, you're pleading with them to turn. There's three methods there, whichever one's best. I don't know, I don't have teenagers. But what we find in the book of Hosea is actually all three together. God lets them to their own self. They get in all sorts of a mess. Other times he unleashes and says, you all don't even know what's coming with the judgment. And then other times he tenderly says, Oh, Ephraim, oh, why? Please, come back, don't, and turn. And so this is a, it's a, a book that's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's hard, uh, it's glorious. So let's get into it. I want to break up and give you a bird's eye view by looking at the context, the comparison, the cycles, the Christ, and the challenge. We'll look at it this way. First, the context. Hosea 1.1, let's, let's start there. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. We have Hosea here. The word came to him. Hosea means salvation. He was a pre-exilic prophet. That means that this is before the exile. So we actually already covered Ezekiel and Daniel. Those are, those are exilic prophets. They had been carried away with Babylon, uh, to Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered. And so Ezekiel especially was uh, preaching from Babylon. Here we have, this is way before This is talking about 700 or so B.C. This is before Nebuchadnezzar has come. And Hosea is preaching to the northern kingdom. You know the the kingdom's divided into two. There's a northern and then there's Judah. So when in verse 1 he's talking about this list of kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those are the kings during this time period of Judah in the south. And then specifically in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, in the north. So Hosea's ministry is to the north. And he's going to be warning of the coming Assyrian attack on the northern kingdom. So it's assumed that he had possibly a 30-year ministry where he's describing what is going to take place in Assyria, uh, with Assyria coming against the northern kingdom. So that's the context. Assyria, I mean, sorry, Israel, the northern, had been experiencing prosperity over time, but then they started worshiping false gods, which then inevitably leads to a decline in morality. And so everything's starting to tilt and getting, going downward, and then looming on the horizon is Assyria coming as God's discipline for them. All right, so that's the context when the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Then we have this comparison or analogy or picture, you might say, that is found immediately in verse 2 through chapter 3. There's a comparison between the family life of Hosea and God's relationship to Israel. And so I want to break this up into two ways. First, the first picture is Hosea's marriage. This is fascinating. This is 
all I can say is wild. Listen to what he says in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Interesting. I don't need to get into too much details here, but why is God doing this? It's because God says, and essentially, this is what I did with Israel. And he's going to now teach through an, a living parable his relationship and what it's been like and what it will become of Israel. So verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, you will notice, as then he describes these children that she is going to have, the first one is in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. I'll explain what this is meaning in a little bit, but I want you to first know that this first child was born to him. Then in verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. No mention here of Hosea. Drop down to verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son again. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. Now, all that to mention is these other two children seem to be, as far as we can tell, illegitimate, not Hosea's children. Okay, that's the, the picture here. She is with, she is an adulterous spouse. And um, this is wild. I'll explain more the explanation of each of these children as we go. But at least we need to see God is teaching something to the people of Israel that they have been unfaithful. And it gets so bad in this, if you get into chapter 2 and then finally into chapter 3, that she and Hosea are separated and somehow she comes into slavery and is being sold as a prostitute. So if we go to chapter 3, they've been separated, and now Hosea is told by the Lord to go and do something. The Lord said to me, chapter 3, verse 1, Go again, love a woman. doesn't say it's Gomer, but it's assumed. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. That's not just what they eat. It actually was a practice of worshiping false gods, eating cakes of raisins. So I bought her, this is Gomer, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a letek of barley and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel, now he goes to switches back to Israel here. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods, which is speaking of judgment, 
Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So even though Gomer committed adultery and then finds herself in this prostitution, Hosea buys her back. It's a glorious picture and promises to be faithful to her. And the picture is that that's exactly what God will do to Israel. Verse 5, just we, we've got some foreshadowing here. Notice they shall return to God and David their king. What, is there going to be another David? Another David? Or should we be looking for a son of David? Okay, so that's the first picture within his family. The second picture is actually of these children themselves. The first is of, of his relationship with his wife that, that models or, or pictures Israel and their unfaithfulness. The second is these children. And so let's read from 4 through 9 again. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived... Again, and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. That right there is a prophecy of the time when Assyria would actually come against Judah and God would wipe out Sennacherib and their army. But verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. This is stark language of just describing that he is cutting off Israel. You're not my people. I am not your God. It's gone too far. So judgment is coming. But what will happen after that? And, and that's what's so amazing about this book. It's just like it's judgment, but then there's promises and hope of restoration. He had just said, you're not mine. But then in verse 10, he speaks with the same language of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy, good news, hope. What's happening here? What is this talking about? Seems confusing. All we could say, at least at this point, if we're just looking at this, is there's going to be a time of restoration where Israel's put back together, brought in under one head, and although they weren't his people, they're going to be called his people again. And so some people will say, all right, this was a time later in the history of Israel, after this was mentioned, when you had exiles or people from the north who were coming down to the south into Judah over time in Hezekiah's kingdom and Josiah's kingdom and eventually into the New Testament era, there were still all 12 tribes 
and they kind of united together under Judah. And so in the time of Christ, there was this people that is all Israel united. And that's why Paul talks about certain times, 12 tribes were worshiping God. Some people will read in James, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So that's one perspective. Another perspective, though, is what Paul says, actually, in quoting these verses in Romans chapter 9. So if you'd turn there with me. In Romans 9, if we didn't have Romans 9 and 1 Peter chapter 2, we might come to that first conclusion. But let's read from Romans 9, 21 through 26 about what is really happening when about this restoration. Romans 9, 21 through 26. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. So the Apostle Paul tells us that these verses in Hosea were actually fulfilled in the privileges and the promises given to Israel. They were, they were fulfilled in believing Jews and believing Gentiles brought into the church. So the promises of mercy to Israel found in Hosea are fulfilled in the conversion of the Gentiles brought into the people of God. Just like we're told in Acts chapter 15, if you've read that, fascinating. What do we do with the Gentiles? And he quotes from Amos, who was a contemporary of Hosea, in the rebuilding of the temple and the house of David. This was all prophecy. The Gentiles would come in. It's the restoration of Israel. And then in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, if you'd turn there, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who's the audience he's talking to here? Primarily Gentiles, of course, with Jews also. Look what he says here, though, as he goes on in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You're a holy nation, a chosen people, the possession of the Lord. You are to act a certain way like a holy people, so that the Gentiles will see who are Gentiles. He's speaking to Gentiles. No, so Gentiles now are unbelievers. Those who are not of the 
true Israel. And of course, that's what Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 2. There are true Jews, as Paul speaks of, who have been circumcised of heart. You can be a Jew outwardly by birth, but not inwardly, as it says. All right, so that's the comparison. Both, all his family is, is teaching something. The marriage about his relationship with an unfaithful people that he will restore them after judgment and then his children who would be named a certain thing they were they were illegitimate children they would then become his people and he received mercy which was ultimately fulfilled in the church that's the context the comparison and now there's these cycles the rest of the book is chapters 4 through 14 which follow a, a cyclical pattern of an accusation a claim of judgment that will come if they don't repent, and then a restoration, a promise. There's three cycles throughout the whole book. I'll give you just a few scriptures that will give you a, a feel for these cycles. Let's look at Hosea 4, 1 through 2. This is the accusation God makes for his people. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Who's to blame for this? Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law, your God, I also will forget your children. He lays it at the foot of the priests and the prophets who have actually kept back the true knowledge of God. Other sins throughout the book that they struggle with is pride, instability, worldliness, corruption, backsliding, idolatry. And basically, that's the accusation. The, the next part of that cycle is judgment. If there's no repentance. Hosea 5, let's read this. Hosea 5, 8 through 10. And they, these, these cycles are characterized by, like the judgment part is about the blowing of the horn. Or uh, trumpet blasts. You'll see it out throughout the book. Verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Hosea 8, verse 13. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Always, though, he's also pleading with them. Turn. If you don't want to be judged for your sins, return to me. Let's look at chapter 6. We'll go back. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. 
that we may live before him. We need to keep that scripture in mind when we talk about Christ in a few. But there's also promises of restoration and mercy that we look at. Let's turn to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 8 through 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is that tender side of God coming out. We saw this awesome redemption earlier in buying back Gomer. Hosea bought his wife back, and we see some sort of similar type of redeeming take place in chapter 13 if you look at that with me Hosea 13 verse 14 I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol I shall redeem them from death O death where are your plagues O Sheol where is your sting compassion is hidden from my eyes I know those scriptures sound familiar to you 1 Corinthians 15 Paul grabs that in speaking about the restoration of the people in terms of body and soul at the resurrection. And the book ends with one final plea to repent and in the hope of restoration. Let's read from Hosea 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, this is like a proverb at the the end. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. It rings with a, a note of hope. And that hope, brothers and sisters, for the people of Israel was actually going to be far off. Uh, That's how God does things sometimes. And we might be struggling to say, how was this actually going to happen and what was it going to be 
look like? Well, we get help right in the New Testament. Matthew, in talking about the birth of Christ, ties Jesus directly to Hosea's promise of restoration. If you look at Hosea 11, 1. In Matthew 2.15, he quotes this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. How was God going to bring about this restoration? It was through a new son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes as the people of Israel. This is what's so fascinating. Israel was the son of God. We learned about that in Exodus. Not by nature, like Jesus, but the son in that God had bore him and brought him on eagle's wings out of the house of slavery into the wilderness to be taken care of and then betrothed to him at Mount Sinai. But they proved unfaithful. But Jesus Christ comes as another Israel. He's the son to fulfill what Israel failed to do in keeping the law perfectly and then also to die the curse of the law. If Jesus lives a perfect life, why is he facing the curse of the law? Exile. Remember, we learned about exile from Adam. Adam in the garden failed, didn't keep the covenant. In fact, in Hosea 6-7, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. He's exiled. Israel didn't keep the covenant. They're exiled. Jesus keeps the covenant and yet experiences the curse. Why? Because it was not for his sins, but ours. He became a curse for us. He was born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under the law. All right? And so this restoration of the people who are not my people, who become my people, those who have not received mercy, have received mercy, it's all because of Christ. We're in Christ who's brought about the restoration, all prophesied in Hosea and the other prophets. So finally, we'll look at the challenge. Backsliding or sinning needs to be seen as prostitution. If anything, you take away. You take away the sweetness of our relationship with God in that it is a a marriage. He is faithful, loves us, but our sinning against him should be taken so seriously as it's uh, adultery, spiritual adultery. Also notice that God recognizes your situation. He's not indifferent to your sin. He's actually going to do something about it in those three forms I talked to you about. I also want to mention that true religion is talked about here in Hosea 6.6. 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus picks this up and says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You've heard that's been said, he says. What does that mean but These people were doing some of the cultic practices of offering sacrifices, but they had a heart that was far from them. And Jesus talks about that being the Pharisees. So we need to be on guard for going through the motions and not having a heart religion and not actually living out our faith by doing mercy. And then finally, just be thinking about Jesus as the bridegroom. 
the bridegroom of the bride, that whole imagery of us being the bride of Christ comes from Hosea. This is Jesus who laid down his life for his bride as it says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then in Revelation 21, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, a holy and happy marriage in a new Eden. That's it. That's the end. And so... Hosea's story here, or Hosea's big idea is how a faithful God relentlessly pursues an unfaithful people, but that's really the story of the entire Bible. And so let's now go to him in prayer. Together we can start in small groups and take 15 minutes.